Our scripture this morning comes from the book of 1 Corinthians, the first chapter. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us the wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts boast in the Lord. This is God's word. Thank you, Susan. Uh, Good morning. Hope everybody is having a uh, fabulous Christmas season so far, Uh, believe it or not. My kids were trying to do the math last night around the Advent wreath where they were, you know, they said, how is it that we're going to have two more Sundays if Christmas is only, you know, we had to do the math, this is coming quick. And so I I hope you're getting ready. Uh, We are in the middle of a series for these four weeks of Advent, looking at the upside downness of the gospel from different angles. So that's what we're doing every week, okay? The gospel is the foolishness of God, which is actually wisdom, and the weakness of God, which is actually power. That's why, that's that's how Paul puts it here in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, which we saw last week. In other words, the gospel is ironic and counterintuitive. It cuts against many of the assumptions we live with because God in the gospel is, in fact, subverting human wisdom and strength. He is subverting our attempts to take his place and live without him. And that is that in the upside-downness of the gospel, God is breaking through our unreality in order to prove to us that what we think is wisdom is really foolishness. Wisdom, remember, we've said this, we've been talking about wisdom for a long time, okay? All the way since the beginning of school. Wisdom is being in touch with reality, and that's the problem The wisdom of this world is wisdom apart from God, and therefore wisdom that is based upon unreality, not reality. And therefore, it's not wisdom at all. It is foolishness, and those who follow it are fools. That's what Paul's been saying. And this is why when God came into the world to rescue us, he did not come as might have been expected. He did not come as a conquering king or a political messiah. He came in weakness and obscurity. He came as a baby, born in a barn, to a peasant couple. The king of the universe, the maker of stars and galaxies, a tiny helpless child. And during his life, he did not ascend to a throne of power. He left his throne in heaven for a cross of shame. And he was not crowned with a jeweled crown, a symbol of magisterial wisdom and power. He was crowned 
with thorns, which is a symbol of our curse, which he bore for us on the cross. He was not hailed nor celebrated. He died alone, shamed, defeated, forsaken. And yet Paul has the audacity to say of him, behold, the wisdom of God, right? The power of God. And so the gospel is the foolishness of God. I mean, it is upside down. And therefore, the church as a gospel community, that is, as a group of people whose identity and self-understanding is and their way of life has reference to the gospel of grace, is also an upside-down community. If not, it might be a community, but it's not a gospel community. It's not a community of the gospel. And so the Advent theme this week is Jesus the Way. It's interesting, in the book of Acts in the New Testament, Luke, who wrote Acts, called the early Christian church, anybody? The Way. So the gospel and the community of the gospel go hand in hand, okay? You, can't, you can only come to know and understand the gospel of grace through participation in your whole life being submerged into gospel community. And these verses are about the community of the gospel, the church, the way. Okay, and I want to say three things this morning, as usual, about gospel community. I want you to see first that it's upside down. Secondly, why it's upside down. And then thirdly, how you live in this upside down community. So those three things. It's upside down. Why it is that it's upside down, because Paul tells us. And then he also shows us how we can live as a member of this upside down community. Okay, so let's just start. First, the gospel community is upside down. Let me show you. Okay, look in 1 Corinthians Chapter 1, we're going to be focused primarily on verses 26 through 31, and we're just going to slowly walk our way through that. And there's a principle that emerges at the very beginning of verse 26 about the church of Corinth. And here it is. In the church of Corinth, there were not many wise, not many powerful, and not many of noble birth. And by these descriptions there in verse 26, Paul means the cultural elites. He means the, the wealthy. He means... Uh, those with influence, those in academia, the celebrities, the upper classes. Paul does not say none, pay attention to that. He says not many. And so in Paul's church planting efforts in Corinth, overwhelmingly it was the lower classes and not the upper classes that responded to his ministry. It was the foolish and the weak in the eyes of society, not the strong, the low, the despised. And And then he says this phrase in verse 28, the things that are... Not, and it's a way in the original language of him saying the kinds of people who don't even count as people. And so what began to happen, the church stood in stark contrast to the city around it. Because remember, what I said last week about Corinth, Corinth was known as a city for its commerce and its government. It was a metropolis. Just like the big cities today, like Atlanta or New York or Chicago, Corinth would have attracted a lot of high-energy, talented, successful, business-savvy people. It was a hub for politicians and celebrities and the wealthy and pop culture royalty. And yet, when the gospel call went out in the streets of Corinth, in the marketplaces of Corinth, it was the poor and the weak and the have-nots who responded. Now, we shouldn't be surprised by this. The same thing happened in Jesus' ministry. Overwhelmingly, when Jesus showed up and began to preach the gospel and heal people, it was the social outcasts and the moral failures who responded to the gospel, not the religious leaders and so on. And it was so pronounced and so astounding to the people 
that in Matthew chapter 21 and 22, Jesus tells a series of parables there uh, to explain it. And in one of the stories, Jesus turns to the religious people that he's targeting in these stories, and he makes this statement, <clears throat> excuse me, and it's just, it's just overwhelming in, in its upside downness. He says, I tell you the truth, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God ahead of you. It was infuriating. Because I understand what he was saying. Jesus was saying, when I mean, you talk about offensive, Jesus is saying prostitutes go into the kingdom before housewives, frat boys before Bible college students, the morally bankrupt before the well-respected. It's absolutely crazy. It is moronic. The foolishness of, the, of God, which is really the wisdom of God. And so the gospel community, whether it's the community of Jesus' disciples or the church in Corinth has always been an upside-down community. Now, here's the point I want to make very clearly this morning, though, okay? And we've got to do some work to go through this. This is not an accident. It's not random. It's not happenstance. It's by design. It happens this way by design. God's doing something specific here because you see in verse 26, at the very beginning, Paul says, For consider your calling, brothers. And that word calling there is very significant. That short statement puts salvation squarely in God's hand. God calls, and we respond to his call in faith. And so, as an illustration, at the tomb of Lazarus, his friend, Jesus, stood, you know, there at the, at the entrance to the tomb of Lazarus, who died four days earlier, and he called and said, Lazarus, come out. And what happened? He came out. It's a picture of our salvation. Right, That into our spiritual darkness and death, God calls and we come. It's what Jesus meant in John 6, where he says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. That word draws, an unfortunate translation of, of the word there. It, it means, the word literally means to forcefully lay your hands on someone and drag them out of the city or out of the house. And salvation, therefore, begins with God's call. He calls. He puts his hands on us, and we come. The, initiate, the initiative is his. But Paul labors at this point, because there's, there's a number of other ways that Paul puts this forward to us in this passage. In verse 27, he begins with, you know, not many of you were wise, not many powerful, not many were of noble birth. And then there's this, this simple phrase, these two words in verse 27, but God. But God chose what was foolish to shame the wise and so on. It's one of Paul's favorite things to say, those two words. So, for example, in Ephesians 2, if you're familiar with the passage, he says, you know, you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, but God, who is rich in mercy, even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, made us alive together in Christ. In other words, that, that but God. In other words, if you're a Christian, it means you were going about your life, minding your own business, following the crowd, and then God stepped in. God began to go to work, and things changed. But God. Those two words are the heart of the gospel. James Boyce, who's a famous pastor in Philadelphia, he put it this way. He said, may I put it quite simply? If you understand those two words, but God, they will save your soul. 
If you recall them daily and live by them, they will transform your life completely. There's a book on Amazon with the title, But God, and the product information, it says this, and it was so good I wanted to quote it. Here's, here's how the, the author of the book summarizes the book. He says, To the left of But God in Scripture appear some of the worst human atrocities characterized by disobedience and rebellion. To the left of the But God we find we, is hopelessness, darkness, and death. But to its right, following, quote, But God, we find hope, light, and life. Quote, unquote, But God marks God's relentless, merciful interventions in human history and our personal lives. It teaches us that God does not wait long for us to bring ourselves to him, but that he acts first to bring about our good. See, all of this language of God's initiative taking, of God moving in, not waiting on us, but but him coming to us, his initiative in our salvation, Paul's even more explicit. When he goes on to say three times in the following verses that God chose what was foolish, what was weak. God chose the low and the despised and the things that are not. And it's, this, this wording is an emphasis on God's electing grace. In Acts 13, Paul's preaching. And the response is overwhelming. And this is the way Luke records it. This is very important. You have to hear his language. He says, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Now he doesn't say those who believed were chosen for eternal life. He says those who were chosen for eternal life believed. And so in Romans 8, Paul says those he foreknew, God predestined, those he predestined, he also called, and those he called, he also justified. It's Paul's way of saying that from beginning to end, salvation is God's work, not our work. And a Christian is a person who responds to God and God's work in faith, knowing that even that faith is God's working in the heart that responds. So salvation is what God does. And that means that the makeup of the Corinthian church was not an accident or a coincidence. It was, and I want to say it still is God's plan, God's wisdom to populate the church with nobodies and misfits and moral failures in stark contrast to the surrounding culture. So kids, I'm, some of the kids are still in here. Kids, if you're here, here's the picture I want you to get. If you can think about, you know, what it was like when you were a kid or, or if you're a kid and you go to school and you can think of playing kickball on the playground at school and the way it always starts is two of the, the most vocal kids become the two captains of the two teams and they each take turns picking the kids they want for their teams. And of course, if you want to win the kickball game at recess at school, You choose the big kids and the strong kids and the fast kids, and you want the kid that can kick the ball the furthest, etc., and all these things, okay? If Jesus were there, it would go something like this. Okay, and if Drew, uh, you you pick first. Okay, well, great. Well, give me Charlie, because Charlie, uh, he's the fastest. Okay, great. Jesus, your pick. Jesus would say, give me Johnny. But Jesus, Johnny's the smallest kid in the class. He can't run fast, right? He can't throw hard. He gets out every time. I want Johnny. Right? Are you sure? That's my guy. You see, 
what the Apostle Paul is reminding the Corinthians is just this, that they aren't first-round draft picks, right? But even so, God chose them because he loves to exalt the humble. That's the way the gospel works. In the gospel, the humble get exalted. So that leads to the second point, and the question is just this, why? Right? In the gospel, God works to exalt the humble. Why? And the answer from this text and from the Bible is because in the gospel, God also works to humble the exalted. In order to establish that salvation is by grace and therefore put an end to all boasting. Okay? Let's walk through this together. I had to study Greek in my graduate degree program, which at the time was very painful and not a whole lot of fun. Um, But the reason I had to study Greek in seminary is because of passages like this one. It's lost in translation a little bit, but there are four purpose clauses in verses 27 through 29. And the Greek preposition there is hina, which means so that or in order to or for the purpose of. So four times God explains in these verses why he works the way he works in choosing the strong, excuse me, choosing the weak over the strong. Okay, so look at 1 Corinthians one twenty-seven. God chose what is foolish to, that's the hina, in order to or for the purpose of, God chose what was foolish in order to shame what is wise. Again, Verse 27, God chose what was weak in the world, same preposition, in order to shame the strong. And that word shame means to confound or cause to blush, to surprise, or even to confuse or embarrass. See, the problem is, the problem with being smart or successful or strong is you eventually learn to use your smarts or your strength to get you through life. And eventually what happens is you begin to think you're somebody and not a nobody because of your smarts or your success or your strength. And God filled the church at Corinth with people who amounted to very little by human standards in order to demonstrate that those standards were wrong. He chose the weak to show the strong that their strength wasn't enough to save them. He chose the nothings, Paul says, the things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are. Let me sum all of that up, and I'm, I'm about ready for my clip. Is my clip going to work? Oh, we'll see. Technology, baby. We're, we are in the dark ages, but that's okay. Here's how I would sum this up. God chose the nobodies over the somebodies in order to show the somebodies that they're really spiritually nobodies. Let me say it again. I see some. God chose the nobodies over the somebodies in order to remind or to convince the somebodies in society that they are really spiritual nobodies. Smarts, success, talent, family, pedigree, these things can get you a long way in society, but they can't get you anywhere with God. They are nothing with God. And the best illustration I know of this is from the movie The Lord of the Rings. At the very end of the third movie, after the battle has been won, okay, so that all my people that make fun of me for the Lord of the Rings references, here you go, yet again. Okay, the Hobbit's coming out this week. I've got it on the brain. We're reading it in the house. Deal with it. Get over it, okay? <laughs> at the very end, the battle has been won. The king that they have been waiting for for centuries has been crowned. There's this celebration 
uh, happening at the very top of the of the city of men, Minas Tirith, and it's this there, you know, all, all, the celebration of how the battle was won. And so you got to get that setting to see how this works. But here's here's this clip to show you, by way of illustration, what Paul's trying to teach us here. Pray that it works. There's the sound. <laughs> That's good enough. Now, if you don't know the story, here's what's happening. The king um, is, is the, 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 the four guys there in the middle are four hobbits who are called halflings, literally. And they are representative of the weak things of this world. And here is the king, finally crowned. And when they go to bow to him, he comes to them and says, no, 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 my friends. My friends, you bow to no one. And the king gets down. And the whole... The whole um, city of men bow before uh, these little guys, which is why they look so, so you know, odd. And the, 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 you know, the story, the point is, for all the strength of Gondor, it was not their warriors who won the battle, it was the weak. And so this bowing down, this bowing down of the wisdom and the strength of the world before the foolishness of the gospel, which is what, which is what that is. Me so clearly pictured in that scene, this bowing down of the wisdom and the strength of the world before the gospel is the perfect illustration of what Paul says God is doing in choosing the weak over the strong. Because victory doesn't come through strength, it comes through weakness. And that's what the story, that's, that's why that story is such a great story, because it's a gospel story. You see, the problem was the Corinthians had begun to look at their smarts and success, and their pedigree as a way not only of advancing in society, but of advancing spiritually. And so the problem Paul is addressing in 1 Corinthians 1 is that there were divisions in the church. We didn't read this part. We're going to do this later. There were different groups of people who felt superior to other groups because they had better theology or because they came from better families or they had more money or whatever it might be. They were boasting. They were boasting. They were beginning to boast of these things. And so in the fourth The fourth purpose clause in verse 29, Paul says, God chose what was foolish, what was low and despised, even the things that are not, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And so God chose to work this way to take away any boasting. Now, what's he mean by boast? What's he mean by boasting that's obviously so spiritually dangerous? The last phrase in that sentence is really important. He says, so that... No human being might boast in the presence of God. In other words, the boast Paul's talking about isn't just naming any boo-boo, I'm better than you. Right? It's about spiritual status. It's bringing something to God 
that will win from him love and acceptance. The Corinthians were using their smarts and their successes and their pedigree to commend themselves to God, to dress themselves up spiritually so that God would approve of them. And that's what the Bible means by a, a boast. A boast is, is what gives you confidence that God loves and accepts you. Spiritually, a boast is how you go out. Whatever your boast is, it's the thing that gives you courage to go out into life with strength, or what gives you courage to stand before the holy almighty God to give an account. And for the Corinthians, it was their talent and their success. It was their record. It was what they were doing. So the Corinthians really believed in salvation by works, not salvation by grace. And what Paul is teaching us is that any boast that causes you to feel self-righteous towards others or look down your noses at them has become a righteousness by by which you're trying to commend yourself to God. And that's his concern. Keep reading. He goes on. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God, it is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus. So here are the options Paul gives us. Option A, boast. Option B, grace. It's because of him. Not you, not your good theology, not your moral record, whatever it might be. It's because of him, not you, that you are in Christ Jesus. So according to Paul, what makes somebody a Christian? God's work. It's because of him that you are in Christ Jesus. And so the opposite of boasting is what we call faith. To become a Christian means you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you repent of your sins, but here's... But you not only repent of your sins, you also repent of your righteousness. That is, you realize what the old hymn says. You know, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. So faith is, I have nothing to recommend myself to God with. I'm naked and helpless and have only one hope that God would look upon me and have mercy. And that's what you turn away from, see? And you stop boasting, at least you stop boasting about yourself, because there is a Christian boast, we're told, verse 31. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Which is a paraphrase of Jeremiah chapter 9, which says this, and I think it's worth quoting at length. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his, wis- in his riches, but let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love. You see, there's a difference. According to the prophet Jeremiah and Paul, between being wise and making your wisdom your boast, there's a difference between being wealthy and making your wealth your boast. Paul, we're told later in 1 Corinthians, boasted in his weaknesses. In Galatians 6, he says he boasted in the cross of Jesus Christ. So there is a boast. And those two things are basically the same thing. But, but what we learn is Paul's confidence, his source of strength, the way he moved out into the world, the way he was confident of coming before God, of confident of God's love and acceptance of him, was the work God did for him in Jesus Christ and not his work for God. Paul's source of strength, his boast, was not his work, was not, here, God, this is what I've done for you. His boast, his source of confidence and strength was rather 
the work God did on his behalf and not his work on God's behalf. Now, let me just finish by making some applications from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. So the third point, then, how do we live then? If, this is, if that's how God works in the gospel, and that's why he works that way, then how do we live in this upside-down community of faith where not many noble, not many wealthy, not many wise, not many powerful, but the foolish things, the weak things, the things that are not, okay? This upside-down community. Let me make a couple applications. Paul says in verse 30 that the consequences of faith in Jesus Christ is, if you look there carefully at the wording, it's really important, that he becomes to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And believe it or not, the NIV is much better than the ESV here because what the NIV does in translating that is it shows that righteousness, sanctification, and redemption are really meant by Paul in the way he structured the language to be three applications of the broader principle of the wisdom of God in Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ is our wisdom from God, and then three applications of Jesus being our wisdom is how we understand these categories of righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. So let me just talk through that, and then I'm done, okay? What does it mean for Jesus to become our wisdom? It means... That in Jesus, we have to rethink everything about the way we do life. Wisdom, remember, wisdom is being in touch with reality. And for Christ to become our wisdom then means we have to adopt a new reality. We have to adopt the gospel reality. And when I say the gospel reality, I mean things like this. When we're weak, then we're strong. The gospel reality is the first or last and the last or first. Those who are truly great are those who serve. This is the logic of the gospel, and it's completely upside down. But upside down according to what? According to our unreality, see? So for Christ to become to us the wisdom from God means that our life together as a church takes on the upside downness of the gospel itself. Let me give you just these three examples. Paul gives us three. He says righteousness. Okay, so... This idea of righteousness, which is another word for justification. The the children's catechism defines justification like this, that God forgives my sins and accepts me as righteous through Jesus Christ. The righteousness is, the idea of justification is the verdict of God. The verdict of God coming down on your life. I've started watching, actually I've only watched one episode because my wife, I'm going to watch it with her and she has to catch up. We're watching Friday Night Lights. Have you seen this? This uh, TV series. And in the, the very first episode, there's, there's a tragedy that happens. And there's this kid that was a football player that's laying in a hospital bed. And he feels like he's let his team down. And he's suffering through, uh, through all kinds of mental anguish over the injury that he's received. And the coach comes into the room. And he stands at his bedside. And, and it's just an amazing uh, scene where he just begins to say, you're a good man. You're a good man. I mean, I don't know. It felt to me like he said it 20 times. Probably only said it three. But it was powerful for me. So he just, the coach just sits there, and, and this boy just begins to melt. He begins to break underneath this verdict of, you're a good man. And he just, you're a good man. And you could just see, you could see through the pain this boy is experiencing, that this verdict of his coach, this man that he loves and respects, how it melts his heart, because underneath he needed so badly to hear this verdict. And what the scripture would teach us is, is we all need to hear a verdict like this. Even Jesus who at his baptism heard from heaven the voice of God saying, this is my son whom I love with him, I'm well pleased. And so there's this need 
for this verdict of God to come down upon our lives. But how does the verdict come? And this is where Jesus becomes wisdom of God. Wisdom from God to us. Because you see, in every other religion, performance leads to the verdict. But in Christianity, it's the exact opposite. The verdict comes and then the performance. Religion is just this. Obey and God will love you. Follow the rules and God will accept you. And so follow, obey, perform, and then the verdict will come. And the problem is, is that religious impulse has made its way even into Christianity so that a lot of Christians believe basically the same thing. But Christ becoming to us wisdom from God means that we reject this idea because it's boasting. Remember what Paul said. It's because of him that you're in Christ Jesus. Religion is unreality. Grace is reality. And so Christ becoming wisdom from God for us means that we live our lives according to the gospel reality and not the religion unreality in matters of righteousness. But not only righteousness. Sanctification. It's the second example. And sanctification refers to the process of God making us more and more holy in heart and conduct. So ask somebody that you come across, if they're growing in their faith in Jesus, they're likely to say something like, I'm trying really hard. And that's the right answer, but we have to be really careful because what most Christians believe is that you become a Christian by believing the gospel, but then once you're a Christian, you advance through effort and hard work. And that's not right. Frederick Buechner put it this way. He said, in Beauty and the Beast, it's only when the beast discovers that beauty really loves him in all of his ugliness that he himself becomes beautiful. He says, in the experience of St. Paul, it is only when we discover that God really loves us in all of our unloveliness that we ourselves start to become godlike. How does the power of sanctification come into your life? What's God's power? How do you access God's power at the beginning of salvation? Through faith in Jesus Christ, not boasting. And so, if you become a Christian by believing the gospel, then how do you advance in your commitment to Christ? By believing it more deeply. But it's counterintuitive. It's upside down. The way you progress, the way you, the way you get to work in Christianity is to stop working. Right? The way to work hard is to rest. And the more you rest, the more, you actually, the more work you actually get done. These things are hard for us to understand. And yet, Paul says, Christ must become wisdom from God for us, not only in righteousness and sanctification, but lastly in this category of redemption. Here from verse 30, and all the commentators agree that by this word Paul means the ultimate victory of God over evil in the world, the promise that God makes that one day all things will be made new, that sin and death will be, will be put down and good will triumph over evil, but how? But see, that's but how? And we are called to join God, to pray and to work for his kingdom come, but How? That's the question, see. Is it by taking power and using that power to make it happen? What the Bible would say is that's unreality. Look at the cross. The cross appears to be weakness, powerlessness, defeat, and so forth. But in reality, it is victory. God conquering sin and death, not through strength, but through weakness. That's reality. And that means, and the reason I keep going back to the story is, that means Tolkien probably has it right. That it's through humility and weakness that the battle will be won. And whatever you're facing, it may feel like you're losing. You may feel weak and helpless and overmatched. Don't be discouraged. Remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 12. I boast in my weakness. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong.
has Christ become for you wisdom from God? Christmas is a great opportunity for us to stare into the moronic, ridiculous, upside-down nature of the gospel. This meal that we celebrate, uh, we celebrate the triumph of the Lamb who was slain over all the nations of the earth, that the kingdoms of this world are becoming the kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Not because he was a conquering warlord, but because he offered his body and his blood in place of ours on a cross of shame. That's the upside-down nature of the gospel. That is the wisdom of God. That is the power of God. Has he become wisdom from God for you? If not, then the fact that we get to celebrate this meal together should encourage you. Because if what you need is faith, the opposite of boasting, it is here that God nurtures in us the kind of faith we need not only to become his children, but to advance uh, in our in our life as his children. So let's pray as we prepare to come to this table this morning. Can we do that, Father? We pray that you use the time we have together around the table you have prepared for us to form us as your people, an upside-down community of the gospel. Um, we pray that you would use this meal now to uh, produce in our hearts faith and repentance, which is your good work in us. Uh, we so desperately need you to come and work. And so we ask that you do what you promised to do and to work now uh, in this sacrament. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. That is my prayer for us as a church, that we would, in fact, uh, rejoice uh, this Christmas season. Uh, one note, if you are planning to come next Saturday night to the Behold the Lamb of God uh, concert, which I, would, I cannot highly, highly enough recommend that you do, even with kids. Uh, if you need tickets, we have them here at the office. They're $5. If the cost is an issue, uh, we don't want it to be an issue for anybody not going. So if you just need a ticket, we have tickets. Um, but you can get them in the church office. Come talk to me up front afterwards. I can get those to you tonight. But that would be a great way for you uh, to, in fact, rejoice in the coming Savior. Uh, and so uh, that's, that's our hope and that's our prayer. Uh, receive the benediction this morning then as the promise uh, that because of the work of Christ for you, which is um, seen so clearly in this table meal that we just ate together, because of the work of Christ then you can be confident, a part of your record, good or bad, uh, that the Father looks down upon you and smiles. Even if it's a frowning providence you're up against, behind a frowning providence there stands a smiling face, the old hymn says. So receive the promise of this benediction then as your boast, and may it provide confidence and strength for you to go out into the world to be faithful to his followers. Receive the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.